Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Claire McKenna. You're listening to Changemakers, the podcast series talking to people at the forefront of change. But you should never underestimate the power of a conversation. It can reframe the way we think, the information we go on to seek, and the conversations we go on to have. This is all very much part of the change process. My guest today is Dr. Owen Gallivan, a senior clinical psychologist and associate fellow with the Psychological Society of Ireland. They've recently set up a special interest group for addressing climate and environmental emergency. Now, chances are those words have caused you to shudder. They did me when I typed them and now again a little as I say them. Perhaps you're feeling the urge to turn off this podcast in favour of something a little lighter or more palatable. And look, I totally get it, but that is the very topic this interview focuses on. The group are looking at the psychological reasons why we hear the information, we know there is only a window of opportunity for us to turn around the climate crisis, and yet we often just return to normal life and hope that someone else will sort it out. Owen speaks honestly about his own journey to becoming climate concerned, not just as a psychologist, but also as a father and the steps he has taken to making a difference. I urge you to lean into the uncomfortable and stick with it. This is ultimately an empowering and uplifting conversation, not only giving greater understanding of how we humans work and behave, but also what we can do now that can make a real difference. There's lots of advice and reference points in the discussion, which I will list in the show notes. I'd love to hear from you about how this episode makes you feel. If you still feel paralysed into inaction by fear or empowered that change is possible. I'm very grateful to Owen for reaching out to me to make this conversation happen. So this is a big topic. I have covered climate change um, on the podcast before, and this is a very different and very interesting angle looking at why we don't actually want to do anything about it. And we'll get into that in a moment. But what's been your personal journey with climate change, becoming more aware of it and then beginning to attach it to your work as a psychologist? Yeah, I suppose, um, like many people, I, I've been saying that I spent about 20 years trying to not think about climate change, as in it was something that would pop into my mind, um, you know, every time I drove a car or got in a plane or ate red meat. I knew intellectually at some level that these things were contributing to this big kind of abstract amorphous problem called climate change that was somewhere out there in the world. Um, but then, you know, life is really busy. So I would put it out of my mind and, and focus on the day-to-day challenges of, of living. Um, and I lived in that state of kind of uh, slightly aware, slightly unaware of it uh, for quite some time. Uh, until uh, about last year, around uh, autumn time last year, uh, during the most recent COP, um, I guess I started paying maybe a little bit more attention to the information 
uh, the timelines started to become um, really quite concerning. You know, people are talking now about numbers of years instead of numbers of decades. And the extent of the damage that's been done and the graveness of the peril that we're all facing, you know, we're talking about mass extinction and collapse of ecosystems and collapse of social systems and collapse of food systems and all of these things that we rely on for healthy lives and the future, our future and our children's future are under serious peril. And somehow that got under my skin. And what I've been saying is instead of just thinking about it, I started feeling things about it. So I started feeling frightened and I started feeling guilty and I started feeling very unsettled about the fact that I was contributing to the problem um, and kind of made a decision at that point to move my life from the I'm contributing to the problem to trying to do everything I can to make sure that whatever I'm doing in my life, adding to the solution rather than being part of the problem side of things. And you mentioned their children and you're a parent as am I. Is that part of your motivator? Because I know it certainly is for me. It absolutely is. And when we think about the future and, you know, you read articles that say within 10 years or within 20 years or within 30 years, I suppose as a parent, you, you, you almost automatically now translate that into the lifespan of your child. And you're wondering what kind of damage and it, it kind of it bounced off a kind of a value set that I have around it or a morality. You know, is it okay to leave the planet in a much worse state and simply ignore things and not try and do things to change it for our children and our grandchildren? And that really didn't sit well with me. You know, I felt, I felt really terrible about that, to be honest. And it was part of the motive to kind of start going, okay, you know, I, I, I don't think I can really live with myself if I'm contributing to this problem. Things are going to get horribly worse for them and their generation. And I just ignore it. That just didn't sit well with me. And I can relate to everything that you've said, as I'm sure people listening will, that we've all heard the reports and, and the figures and the timelines that you said and, and felt that fear and know it intellectually. But even as you're talking about it now, and I've a vested interest, this is my podcast, I'm sitting here listening to you, everything in my body wants to go and hide under the duvet and stop thinking about it because it is so terrifying. Is that what you've began to look into now is to the psychology behind why we seem to be almost paralyzed by fear? Exactly. So w one of the things that dawned on me as I went through this kind of personal shift in, in my own kind of way of relating to things and I, you know, did a um, kind of a reckoning with my own lifestyle and um, made some personal changes and then started looking into my professional life and where could I do things. But one of the things that really struck me on that journey was the role of emotion and affect and fear um, in all of that and the very significant psychological patterns that occur that help us to deal with those things and a lot of that is to do with um, not wanting to feel so terrible you know who wants to wake up in the morning and realize that society is on the brink of collapse and the world is on the brink of collapse no no one no one wants to become conscious of that it's an extraordinarily difficult to stay thing to stay conscious of because it involves feeling uh, very strong difficult feelings about what's happening in the world um, and we have a variety of ways of um, kind of distancing ourselves from those feelings or shutting down from those feelings or escaping those feelings um, the, the kind of psychological equivalent of running away as you say and hiding from it um, and that started to really interest me that there is a there is a psychology at play here 
and that maybe articulating that and bringing some light to that could be useful. So you are uh, vice chair of the Psychological Society of Ireland's special interest group, which is addressing the environmental and climate crisis. So what are some of the areas you're looking at? So I suppose what really struck me, Claire, was how broad an area, first of all, climate is. You said at the beginning, this is a really big area and it is absolutely huge to try and get your head around. You know, I'm I'm very much still on on a learning curve and that's not just with the physical sciences and all that's involved, but it affects every single part of our life. So the, the, the psychology and the sociology of climate change is, is actually pretty complicated in that there's plenty of, um, ways of thinking about things as there, as there are for all human behavior. Um, but I suppose the, the ideas that, um, seem to be prominent and are maybe quite useful for people in a sense, um, that I've landed on are ideas that are articulated by people like George Marshall, who's written a lovely book called Don't Even Think About It, um, or Per Epson Stonks, who's a Norwegian climate psychologist, who has a, a kind of a nice handy model that, you know, five ideas about ways that we disconnect from climate uh, information. So those are the kind of areas that um, we've, we've been looking at and uh, working on bringing into some public attention. So they would include things like um, cognitive uh, distance or psychological distance, as it's sometimes called. So the idea of um, when you hear a piece of climate relevant information, uh, you know, that there is global warming, for example, and global temperatures are rising and sea level rises, etc. One of the ways that we have of dealing with that is by imagining that that's to do with things that's far away from us. So it's not really to do with me. Uh, so the fact that sea levels are rising, well, that might be, you know, a problem for people in the Maldives, or it might be a problem for polar bears, but, you know, I'm, I'm busy and I have to get back to work. So we can kind of put distance between ourselves and the issue. It's a perception, of course. It is absolutely to do with everyone at this stage. Uh, it doesn't make any rational sense, but that's how we kind of deal with it internally. Um, and there's there's a kind of a, an interesting part to this, which is that for a prolonged period of time, that was arguably rational and reasonable. Um, so for many decades, uh, climate uh, damage, if you want, was something that was going to be in the future. And that's the primary narrative we've been telling ourselves. Climate change is something that's going to happen in the future, um, which made sense. So we habituated to that narrative and it, it kind of let us off the hook a little bit, as in we didn't have to take responsibility for it now. But I think we've moved really past where that was reasonable, but we haven't shifted our consciousness around it. In other words, we haven't started acting as if it's an emergency for us now and we're still treating it as if it's something that is a problem for people in the future and when we think about people in the future we tend to it's called temporal discounting or hyperbolic discounting where we really undervalue the degree of threat in the future you know there's going to be really bad but it's going to happen in 5 10 20 even 30 or 40 years it tends not to really get us moving something that's really bad that's going to happen right now does get us moving So if everyone's house was flooding this morning and we were told if you stop burning gas in your home and you take the bus to work and you stop eating red meat, the flooding will abate, you know, there would would be no, uh, no stopping us. We'd all get to it straight away. But because it's a little bit in the future, we can kind of put it off and put it off and put it off. So that's one idea is the idea of psychological distance that we separate ourselves from it. And I really felt that with the war in Ukraine and I'm not going to paint myself in a in a very good light here but I'm sure other people 
will have had a similar experience. When the first news of the invasion broke, I was literally going around in a permanent state of anxiety, thinking not only of the people within Ukraine and everyone involved in in that invasion and, and what that would mean to their personal safety, but I felt that anything could happen across Europe at any time and my own personal safety and that of my family would be effective. And as time has moved on and I've realised even though I still have full empathy and I've, I've helped in ways that I can here in Ireland, that my everyday family and personal life hasn't been affected, that level of fear has gone right down. And I, I really observed that and noticed that. And, and it's the same really with climate change. It is. And it's it's so easy for us to do that, to habituate to the message of doom, you know, this terrible thing that's happening. But then we look around and we say, well, you know, everyone's going to work and Everyone's still buying their mincemeat in the supermarket and everyone's still taking their holidays. So everything must be fine, right? And then we just kind of go back to normal. Um, so there's, that's a really powerful impact on our behavior. We're highly sensitive to how other people are responding to things. So uh, if you think about COVID, for example, and how powerful the social signals of uh, keeping distances and wearing masks, when everybody was on board with those behaviors socially, um, it became a very powerful social shaper of our own behavior. You know, there was, it was just almost like you, you don't question it. And anyone who did question it was very quickly um, kind of shut down and put in their place. And that's appropriate because it was a, a major public health emergency and we're all under threat. Uh, somehow climate change is a much harder subject to, to engage people in. Um, and w- one of the ways of thinking about that, there's an acronym, uh, PAIN, um, which is used sometimes to explain why we don't respond to it in the way that we have that we did for, uh, for, for COVID or, or with a, an impending invasion or something like that, even though climate change is much, much, much more serious than both of those things, um, is because it's not personal, it's not abrupt, uh, it's not immoral, and it's not now. So these are the things that tend to really grab our attention and put, bring us into uh, action. Uh, so personal. Uh, it's very easy to perceive climate change as being something that's not personal to me, as I was saying before, that idea of distance. It's not an abrupt change. It's not something that's happened right now or today. It's been happening for decades, and it'll still be happening for decades. So unlike the war in in Ukraine or the onset of COVID, which happened over a very short period of time and took all the headlines, climate change has kind of been in the news for years and decades, and no doubt will be. It's not. It's it's hard to find a bad guy with climate change, and we're all complicit. So we've all been inadvertently socialized and habituated into ways of thinking, behaving, and acting that are making the problem worse. So it's not like we have a COVID or a Putin to blame. We're all kind of the bad guys in a way, and that diffuses some of that sense of uh, immorality and responsibility. And it's not happening right now, or it's easy to perceive as if it's not happening right now, at least for those of us in countries where we're not experiencing climate shocks right now. So people in the Horn of Africa, for example, it is happening right now. Um, People who are in uh, places where there's wildfires burning their homes down, it is happening right now. But for us right now in Ireland, it doesn't feel like it's happening right now. There's been no major climate shocks that we've, we've had to kind of deal with, if you want. And you said there, it's all our problem. But I think also, in a way, we look to our leaders to sort it out. And I I do hear people say, and I know it's passed through my brain as well, that the scientists will sort it out. Somebody else 
will fix it. And it, it came to my mind again there when you mentioned COVID. Everybody got on board. Policies changed. Global leaders came together. We often think it's too expensive. We can't just stop using gas and oil and fossil fuels. We can't just do all of this or economies will collapse. And yet we literally stopped the world in a pandemic. So we we can do it. So I suppose sometimes when we look at a bad guy or for a bad guy, we look for somebody else and somebody bigger than us to to, to look after it. I mean, why are are they not doing it? I don't even know if you, you can have the answer to that, but are, are they involved in the same psychological issues that we are, our, our world leaders? I think so. Um, and there's a lot of vested interests at play and it is difficult and it is complicated. In, in a way, COVID was simple. Um, you know, it's a disease. Here's a small set of behaviors. It's temporary. It's going to go away quickly. And if we do X, Y, and Z, we'll all be safe and let's keep each other safe. So there, there was a a clarity and an abruptness of things that in a way made the leadership easier. Some countries did very well with it. Some countries did did quite poorly with it. But in a way, it was more simple. We do need that level of concerted policy government um, leadership, though. And I do think it has been lacking, both from, from a policy and enforcement point of view and a communication point of view, and also from a media point of view. There's still a lot of... <clears throat> Um, you know, ambivalence in the in the media. Once you become conscious of this kind of thing, it's hard to put the genie back in the in the in the bottle. You know, it's hard to unsee it. But for example, you might have a newspaper report with you know saying that the a glacier is about to melt in in Antarctica, which people can kind of disregard because you know that's Antarctica. It's not me right now. And then in the same newspaper, you have a a report about um, we're going to have a really hot summer and pictures of people bathing on the beach. And it's like they people aren't putting these things together as if we're we've all been socialized into thinking it's okay to not take this seriously. And I think that has permeated right through our society, including politicians. Having said that, the communications now are beyond uh, question. So I, I do think now we absolutely should be holding our leadership to account for not communicating more effectively on this. Um, and I do think... Uh, leadership is needed. On the other side of that equation, um, because I think one of the, we're absolutely right to hold leadership account and we we should be looking for leadership and and policy direction and kind of rules to be brought in so that we live our lives uh, in a way that's better and and different. But one of the dilemmas with that is that it can almost make us feel as if we're helpless because it's, it's their fault. They're the ones not leading us. They're the ones not doing what they should be doing the bigger person, as you say, the, the, the big corporations or the, the government. And that can be quite disempowering. If we look into um, some of the work that's being done by people like George Monbiot, who's a, a, a news reporter on climate change, and uh, has written a fantastic book recently called Regenesis and uh, loads of articles in The Guardian, and, and he's done loads of work on social media. Um, but he, he talks about the idea of um, social tipping points. And social tipping points is when society starts to realize from the ground up as opposed to the top down that something is unacceptable and we have to change it. You can see this in a variety of social movements, um, for example, with uh, equal rights and marriage. um, That was essentially a a ground up um, movement as opposed to a policy direction by government. And the more I talk about change um, 
and and find out about change. The power really is from the from the bottom up to push for change at the top. And I think people will be really surprised that that tipping point is only around 10%, that if 10% of people hold an unshakable belief, that becomes the belief held by the majority of society. We don't need to get that many people on board for it to then spill over. So I suppose it's about getting us to that 10%. And you mentioned the TED Talk by Per Epson Stonks, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes because it's well worth checking out. And he talks about the way we communicate about climate change. And I've heard other activists talk this way, that people have apocalypse fatigue, which even in in itself is is quite a couple of words to get your, your head around. We need to talk a little bit more positively about the success stories and get people on because it's that hard wiring we have in our brains that we spoke about at the start. The more we talk about doom, the more we want to hide under the duvet, the more we give clear steps the way we did in COVID and talk about what we can do rather than what we can't do. Is that how we'll get to that tipping point? It's certainly part of it. Um, and there's different research on this. Uh, George Monbiot talks about 25% as being the number that you get to for a minority to change the minority group's view. There's also another figure that um, people reference 3.5 or 5% um, in order to get political change. So if you if you get 3.5% of a population out on the street protesting, that's sufficient. I think what's encouraging about that idea is um, it's it's very overwhelming to imagine everyone having to change now. You know, all however many billion of people need to change. But when we break that down into one in every four people, let's say, changing their minds, and then you start thinking about that in your circle, in your own circle, your family circle, your, your work life, your social life, that starts to feel like a much more manageable um, achievement in a sense, that one in four people can change their mind is sufficient to bring the whole group with them. And if we all think about our social world and think, okay, well, you know, that's how many people do I know? And is there, how many conversations can I have? It starts to feel like an achievable aim. And that ground up momentum can build through that. I also agree entirely that we can get stuck in a couple of unhelpful places around climate change. One of them is this idea of doomism, where it's so awful um, that either you disconnect, you kind of become numb to it and you just put it on the psychological shelf and you think, I can't deal with that, it's too much for me. Or, or whatever version of that you have, you know, people have different versions of it. Um, it's China's fault. There's nothing I can do. My contribution won't matter. It's the government's fault, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm too busy. One person in, in work said to me, I just don't have time for this, um, which is an interesting thing to, to think, you know. Um, so w- we can kind of put it on the shelf out of a sense of doom. The, the other problematic space is kind of, a, if you imagine a pendulum swinging right over to kind of optimism, unrealistic optimism. Asher, it'll be grand. Um, a family member said, you know, people are so resourceful, I'm sure they'll come up with the solutions. Wait, sitting around waiting for the scientists or, or, you know, a tech company to come up with some magic solution that fixes the problem so we can all just keep on going as we are. And those are two really problematic places because they both further um, the sense of inactivity and the kind of stagnation that we're in. 
And neither of those spaces bring us into a point of actually changing the things that we know we need to do that actually do make a difference uh, right now. Um, so I, I agree that positive stories about um, things changing is can be much a much better motivational um, lever if you want. There's, there's an interesting, um, and I actually kind of saw this happening myself. I got solar panels recently, and there's some research that shows that if you if you put solar panels on people's roofs in a neighborhood, um, if you put one solar panel up, up, nothing much happens. If you put two or three or four, suddenly you start to get this um, kind of knock-on effect where everybody starts doing it. Because it's visible, it's constructive, it's positive. People start believing it's possible. And if you ask people, are they concerned about climate change and would they do something about it if they could, the vast majority of people say yes to those questions. So so finding ways to make it easier for people to do the right thing and make the right choices is extraordinarily important. And this is where the government can play a huge role. Um, Their new grant uh, structure, for example, through the SAAI for you know, heat pumps and solar panels is a is a good step in the right direction, but huge, huge, huge um, progress can be made with cycling infrastructure, with public transport, um, with other ways of nudging more pro environmental behavioural change through uh, consumer choices around plant based diets, for example. That's a really difficult one in Ireland with the agriculture lobby, etc. So there's a great deal more we can do, um, and we 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 respond well when people give us good good options to do so. I think I heard someone commenting that the day after the SEAI, SEAI grants went up on the website uh, or up, went up, went live, um, their website crashed the next day, which is extraordinary. I think there's a huge latent goodwill towards doing the right thing that just needs to be tapped into. And have you seen that since you put your solar panels up? Have neighbours begun to ask friends? I, I don't know how long you have them, but when you start to say, I'm going to spend X a year, but before that I was spending more. That's when you start getting people on board. Have those conversations begun? Yes, absolutely. So a a neighbor um, stopped me in the driveway and asked me about it. Um, And I'm able to, you get this little app that comes with your solar panel and I can share on on WhatsApp, you know, how much electricity I I generated through sunlight that was free and how much I sent back to the, you're actually a contributor to the, um, the grid uh, providing clean energy onto the grid and soon soon you'll be getting paid for for doing that not a huge amount of money but it's a very positive experience um it makes you feel like you're doing something you're on the you know your, your kind of mind goes from guilt and terror and god i feel so bad that i'm not doing anything or being defended it's not mine all those kind of defenses that we have it brings you from that side of things to okay, now I feel like I'm actually contributing and I feel a bit more empowered. And what's the next thing I can do to keep that kind of momentum going? And that's very powerful. There's a term that's used called the virtuous glow or the idea of hope that um, positive action in solving climate change breeds uh, the motivation to do more. And the government can play a huge part in facilitating our engagement around that as they've started to do. Because sometimes it does feel futile, certainly with recycling. Um, I, for years, have been a freakish recycler. Um, and you sometimes feel not only conscious of the amount of plastic that there is, and you might be better lobbying groups to stop the, the plastic 
and spend your time doing that more than the time you spend cleaning it out and drying it and putting it in the green bin. And then you hear that it all gets sent away anyway um, and that the countries that took it have stopped taking it now and none of it's really happening anyway. There's this sort of cycle of, of distrust. So it's very different sometimes to the one you described there with the solar panels where it's positive and empowering. Yeah, I think that's really important. There's some research done recently by a group called Rare um, and Project Drawdown, their US-based international uh, climate uh, groups looking at the the extent of the contribution that households can make and and this is i think this is us based research so it might be a bit more than ours but it's still still significant that they estimated between 25 and 30% of the changes that need to be made come from households and it's not from one thing so we have to be and there's also a, a really important sense of hierarchy that we haven't yet been communicated about some some useful research done by the ESRI recently showing that people for example thought that recycling was more significant uh, than eating red meat in terms of their the the impact on environment so there's a there's a bit of work to be done in communication around a hierarchy of what's the most important stuff for us to do and when you look at the the hierarchy they're usually the things that people um, really don't want to give up and there's there's a kind of a challenge in here for all of us in finding a way to construct a narrative around for example not flying or eating a plant-based based diet and those things can be about you know the value of slow travel or the health benefits of plant-based diets for example those are positive narratives around the behavioral change but at some point we also need real kind of structural changes that uh, nudge economically us in another direction so for example um we've we're going on a family holiday we're taking a ferry purposefully not flying um i was invited to a conference recently to speak that i'm not going to because it was going to, to cost me a huge amount of money and about five days to get to copenhagen and back instead of you know i think the, the ryanair flight was 30 quid or something and we, we should really be reversing that so that for example, aviation is extremely expensive. Taking the train or the ferry is much, much cheaper. And you kind of translate that in your day-to-day life as well, that um, we don't subsidize fossil fuels. We subsidize public transport and healthier options uh, for people. And we tell a healthy, positive story about that so that people are brought on board for positive reasons. You'll save money, you'll be healthier. It's better for the environment, etc. rather than a doom story, which is quite hard to, to tolerate. And what about the small steps, the the health and, and wellness camp, which I have a, another foot in, always talks about that, that we've been getting it wrong in the messaging to people and people sort of start on a Monday and they clear out every cupboard of what they deem to be bad food in their house and they get up at 5am and they run 5k and by Thursday they're exhausted and it's really hard and it's not nice. Whereas if you make small incremental changes coming from a positive mindset, you're far more likely to have an actual change in your lifestyle and for it to be a positive experience. Can it be the same here in climate change or do we have time for that? Well, I think your your question at the end there kind of answered itself. On a human, human behavioral change level, the first version of the story is absolutely correct. That that's incremental change journey um, is a bit easier to tolerate and maybe a bit gentler. 
But unfortunately, we are getting close now to the point where we just simply don't have time to allow everyone go on this kind of meandering journey without some real direction and some real shaping involved. It still can be uh, progressive um, in the sense that, you know, you've, you've got a, a grant for putting solar panels in. You don't all have to do it today, but it's there and, and prices are increasing. So within the next 12 months, that kind of time frame can still be steps. Uh, but we also shouldn't be frightened of making big changes when the reasons are good enough, you know, because we can do that. We're well, well able. We're highly adaptable. When we need to make big changes for our own safety and well-being, we can do that. And I think we've been sold a bit of a a lie to ourselves in the sense that that we're somehow incapable or in not able to tolerate um, big changes. That's just not true. We, we absolutely can. I think the really important ingredient in that for us as a society is this idea of a just transition, that we don't um, leave groups of people behind, or that have groups of people who have to do a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of change. Uh, let's say it's in the agriculture space or people in the energy field or um, people who are heavily reliant on fossil fuels for industry or wh- whatever it is, wherever those groups are who have to do the heavy lifting that they get the most social support, just in the same as what happened uh, in COVID. Um, You know, industries that had to shut down were supported so they didn't completely go to the wall. And we should have the same mindset that we shouldn't be frightened of the change. We should be frightened of not changing. And we should be encouraged by our capacity to tolerate and be adaptive when we need to be. As we've proven to ourselves, you know, even though COVID has taken its toll, Um, Boy, did we prove we can adapt when we need to. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, and then readapt again. I've been really fascinated by that. You know, I, I, I've been to a, a gig recently and, you know, it was sort of halfway through, I realized, God, I'm in, in the midst of thousands of people and I haven't been fearful once, whereas cut to a year ago, I, I, I wouldn't have been comfortable in that situation. So you're right, we really can adapt. And along with big change, what about the power of small incremental change? I think sometimes there's also a school of thought that it's burning down anyway we may as well go down partying and me rinsing out my recyclables or turning off lights when I'm not using them or getting a bamboo toothbrush is really not going to make that much of a difference if we all made small incremental changes don't they amount to big change 
Absolutely. You're absolutely right. So um, it's only a coffee cup said 7 million people every day, you know, it's, and it adds up very, very quickly. So w- the psychology of that is really important. And this comes back to this kind of social communication and political communication that certain behaviors become um, socially unacceptable anymore. In, in the same way, smoking is a is a, an interesting change to reflect upon. Um, I'm old enough to, to remember being, you know, in my 20s and going out into a pub. And actually, when the smoking ban was, was started to be talked about, arguing against it and saying the atmosphere will be ruined and uh, it just wouldn't be the same. And, you know, t- it seems so terribly naive in retrospect to even think that. Um, but, you know, heavily socially conditioned into a particular mindset. And then once the change happens, um, it's it flips almost instantly. And within a few, a few short years, everyone is saying, God, I can't believe we ever actually tolerated that. We can imagine the same being true for, um, for example, driving cars and driving kids to school. Once you have proper cycling infrastructure and everyone starts walking and cycling, the idea of having 100 cars sitting idling outside the school, polluting the air, becomes completely intolerable. And people start saying, why in the world were we doing this? Uh, And that's true for many of the pro-environmental behavioral changes, that once you get over the initial kind of fear and the stuckness, if you want, um, you start to think, how was I ever doing this? I started cycling my bike to work and I realized, by the way, that uh, not everyone can, and there's always that kind of sense that um, you have to do what you can, and everyone's life is a little bit different. But I, I was fortunate enough to be able to start cycling an electric bike to work, which has been a complete revelation in my life. <clears throat> I've managed to uh, ditch about 80% of my car usage. Now the idea of getting into the car in the morning and driving to work feels toxic. <laughs> and initially, I was a bit fearful of getting out on the bike. You know, I was I was tentative and I hadn't cycled in a, in a while and it just took me a little bit of time to get used to to kind of doing it and suddenly my mindset has shifted and the same is true with with red meat now I, I'd be very slow to order red meat um on a menu if I if I'm ever out and before that would have been I would have been the opposite it was my opportunity to eat red meat um was being out and about because you get a really well cooked steak or a really nice burger in a restaurant and I've just changed my mind and you know it wasn't that hard and I think we tell ourselves that we can't change our mind about these things and we can't do these things. And it's part of keeping ourselves feeling safe, maybe keeping ourselves feeling to avoid that sense of responsibility and the overwhelm that can come with looking at climate change. Uh, some people suggest that we should nudge and shape pro-environmental behaviors without necessarily connecting to the huge massive problem that's looming. In other words, there's other ways of getting people to generate their electricity and you don't even have to tell them it's about climate change. It's just cheaper for example. Uh, so we maybe we need some of that in the world too. Um, but we certainly need enough people thinking about the issue and making those small behavioral changes. W- one of the more important things though, Claire, I think about the small behavioral changes is not so much the carbon impact of it, even though that's significant. And as you say, if we do it collectively, it's very significant. It's the social impact. So this idea of a social tipping point comes about through lots and lots of people making small behavioral changes and influencing each other. So the value of small behavioral changes, whether it's recycling or using a keep cup or taking the bus to work instead of your car um, or taking a ferry on holidays instead of a plane, the value of those things is as much to do with the influence you have on others as it is the carbon impact. But is it cool though, do you think? Because that 
seems to have some sort of a psychological impact into how we view things. I've I've noticed a real shift in plant-based discussion, for example. I mean, that's everywhere. We've plant milk everywhere. You're, you know, tripping over the different choices we have for a milk alternative. And years ago, somebody who said they were vegan, people just didn't really have an understanding as to, you know, what they were doing or, or why they would bother with that. Whereas now every second person seems to be favoring plant-based, at least an addition into their life and, and meat-free meals and all of that. So I think there is a bit of a, a cool revolution. But there's still a bit of a lecturing type element to the talk of climate change. And I, I, I think people will have heard you talk. I mean, you haven't lectured, you, you know, you've been very metered in everything you've said. But I'd imagine there's going to be people who are going to eye roll when they hear oh, he's not flying on holidays. Or for God's sake, it's still got that. Well, how do we get that whole idea out of it that people think that by you taking a ferry on your holiday, you're judging their behavior and therefore they are back in that paralysis and, and inaction. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting observation. And in fact, when I started kind of making some of these changes, one of the things I became anxious about was how I was going to be seen. Am I going to be perceived now as being critical and judgmental? Because you're stepping out of a social norm. And once you do that, once you step out of a social norm, um, people suddenly feel a sense of consciousness that they are the ones who are now the problem and you're the one who's suddenly virtuous because you've stepped out of that so problematic social norm. So there is a really important um, piece of understanding in all of that that's really important to bring with us. And it's something to do with we're all in this together. Um, I've been contributing to the problem of climate change my whole life. Uh, I carry a sense of um, regret and guilt about that. And, but at the same time, and, and I didn't intend to do it. The intentionality is really important with morality as well, isn't it? That people don't use a, a throwaway coffee cup or, or fly on their holidays because they intend to cause climate change. That's not what they're doing. They're trying to get coffee and they're trying to go on their holidays. So when they're, when people are feeling like that, what they're feeling is, well, I just want to go on my holidays. I deserve this holiday. I've worked hard all year. And they're right. Absolutely. You do deserve a holiday and you have worked hard all year. And in our current context and socialization, that makes perfect sense. So it's really important that I think we acknowledge that the, 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 the moral wrong here is not the intention of the individual who's doing the um, behavior, flying on a plane, for example. It's in the collective indifference to the, the problem. That's actually where the, the damage is being done. And that's being fueled by vested interests. So people in the fossil fuel industry, for example, love the fact that people feel guilty about saying that they're uh, not flying on holidays um, because uh, they're worried about how they're going to be judged. That's music to the ears of people who work in, in Shell or, you know, and the same with, with the kind of agri-food industry, that there's a huge vested interest in keeping things going in their favor, while we all struggle with the idea that, you know, am I going to be judged, et cetera, et cetera. I think we need to move past that. We need we need the good good social messaging to say this is the right side of the thing, the kind of equation to be on now. As you say, there is a, a kind of a dawning or emerging consciousness of this that is starting to get a bit of social credibility now. That there's a sense that this isn't just some kind of extremist. When, when someone introduced me at a, a talk recently and said um, a climate psychologist, an environmentalist. And I thought, am I really? When did I when did I become part of that tribe? 
And not that there's anything wrong with that, um, but I suddenly became very conscious of being part of a social grouping that there is stigma attached to and that there are kind of um, a lot of eye rolling about. You know, we've all habituated it to that. If you think about the term environmentalist, you kind of, the image that comes up is probably someone with dreadlocks who are willing to change them, chain themselves to a tree. Um, at this kind of, you know, kind of flaky, unrealistic, extreme kind of, uh, and that's really changing, I think. I think the idea that we're destroying our environment doesn't belong exclusively now to people who might have fallen into the classification of activist or environmentalist. It's now everyone's problem. So I do think that's shifting. I think you're right, that's shifting. However, I still think we need to help people in getting over the decision-making lines through kind of nudging their economic choices through government messaging, uh, through more information in education, uh, through our health service taking it seriously, for example, which they're starting to do. I mean, I watched with horror when Greta Thunberg first came to prominence. Um, and I think she's been really responsible for a big global shift in, in consciousness, because what I saw was she was a child at the time speaking out and asking the question because kids have a really good way of cutting to the chase and just simplifying everything and asking, why would we do this? Why wouldn't we change? And I know she was a, a teenager, but she was still effectively a child. And all of a sudden she began to be discredited. Um, and the fact that she was on the spectrum became something that I, I didn't even think had relevance in the conversation because what she was saying was pertinent and was factual. And people just look to discredit all the time, which was worrying to me. Yeah. And she's done a, an incredible job on behalf of everyone. Um and it's it's in a way to our shame that it's it's it fell to a you know a teenage girl to kind of wake a lot of people up um but she's she's done a great job with that um and she should be supported and we should listen uh, it's time for the grown-ups in the room we, we've kind of i think there's another another way of a grown-ups avoiding responsibility to this is that we've kind of given it to teenagers and kids as almost like school projects do a school project on climate change and in some way that means it's not really that important and it's their generation's issue it's not ours so it's another way of deflecting and avoiding the responsibility and while of course the youth voice is extraordinarily important and uh, education is a really important vehicle for discussion and thinking about this um, we need to be sure that we're not letting our side of that kind of dialogue down um, by not being the grown-ups in the room and making the changes wouldn't it be great if we could start teaching kids about the massive change in societal behavior that we made in order to save their future instead of telling them about all the terrible things we're doing that's destroying it. And it's interesting. I mean, my kids have come home with various things. Palm oil was a, a big discussion point in our house, as I'm sure it is in, in anyone who has kids in, in primary school. And there's a particular popular spread that kids love that has it in it. And it can be in a lot of, it, 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 to be honest with you, it turned out it was in everything. We stopped buying that particular spread. I started looking at the side of, of peanut butter. And then I think that was when my son first came home with it. And I thought, oh, great, we've got palm oil licked. And then my daughter subsequently came in two years later. And whatever way her teacher had looked in it, I started looking at the other packets. And it's literally in 
everything. How do you stop yourself getting tied up in knots? Because when we were talking about plant milk there, you know, often I get tied up in knots there as well. You hear that the growing of soy is actually as damaging as it is with if you look at the, the agri industries. How do you stop yourself getting caught in a quagmire of over-information? How do you know what's the right and simple thing to do? Yeah, it's such a, and I think you've perfectly elucidated some of the problems that we're facing is that there is a thousand things you could do. And that's a, that's a load of opportunities, but it's also a confusing dilemma at the same time. This is where the idea of a hierarchy what are the really damaging things that we need to stop doing now in the short term? And there's a few really big ones. The really big ones are moving to a plant-based diet. Um, George Monbiot has done a a wonderful job at elucidating just how damaging our current uh, farming and agricultural practices are for the environment and no less here in Ireland. So moving to a plant-based diet and uh, flying they have a huge impact relative to other things. Now, other things are still important. That's not to say that uh, driving to work isn't isn't important or um, recycling and consuming less isn't important. They're hugely important. But I think we need a hierarchy. And I don't think we're being spoken to honestly and robustly about this through government or through policy. It it still feels like... um, you have to go away and read the science yourself to come to this. There isn't a there isn't a social contract around it yet. That's what's missing, isn't it? That there isn't a social contract that says it's okay to say I'm not going to fly or I'm going to reduce my flying to whatever it might be, one short haul every three years and one long haul every eight years. It was a, an article in The Guardian re- recommended that as a minimum or a maximum amount. We don't have a good social contract on this yet. So it, it's left down to individual opinion. Well, I believe I deserve a holiday. Okay, so it's gone then. There's there's no social contract. So what we're really missing is a sense of collective endeavor. We need to do this together. And, and that means bringing all those people who work in the airline industry and the agricultural industry into a different frame and supporting them into a different version of livelihood. Uh, because you can't have a massive shift in those two worlds without having... Um, people having massive changes in their lives and they deserve to be supported and helped and facilitated and indeed you talk to many people uh, or you listen to many people from those worlds talking and they want those changes too so I, I totally agree and while making a change around palm oil is important because it's a consumer signal and it's part of the education of our children um, and it's part of a broad sweep of um, kind of clearing our making good on our contract to the world and living our lives right. If you really want the big stuff, it's uh, through those in the, in the consumer behavior space, it's, it's flying and, and uh, dairy and red meat uh, and other livestock. And another thing that is so important that we can do that is very powerful is to be part of the 25% or the 10%, whichever version of that story you want to tell. So this is where I think, the pace of change, as we talked about earlier, is unfortunately way, way, way off. So there's a race between climate tipping points, which are catastrophic for human well-being, including ours, and social tipping points, which are um, being pulled on by all of these other factors that we've been talking about, social, psychological, economic, cultural, etc. 
the speeding up the pace of the social tipping points journey is maybe one of the most important things all of us can do. Now, consumer behavior is part of that because it empowers us. If you make changes that you feel you can talk about it. So for example, me saying to people, I'm not flying anymore. You know, there was jaws dropping in rooms saying no to people. I'm not going to, to talk at that conference or I'm not going to deliver that training in the UK or wherever it might be because of climate change was a real shock to people. They just it's like they couldn't quite compute that <laughs> this was even a, a thing to think about at this point. Um, so the social implications of making those changes and feeling empowered to talk about them is part of becoming part of the 25%. It's part of moving the social tipping point closer and closer and closer till we get to that point where it's no longer okay to smoke in bars, right? And how do you suggest we communicate these changes to other people because I think that's really important if we're talking about this on a psychological level we're trying to meet people where they're at and have the best possible outcome so when we're talking about changes we're making how do we make it sound like it's not lecturing I mean when you're saying you're not flying are you like for god's sake that the, the world is burning down what what do you what do you expect of me do you say that to people? You know, it is a fact, but does that stop people and make it worse? Yeah, it's a really uh, important point. I, th I think um, the idea of effective climate communication comes back to, it depends on the relationship you're in. So who's communicating to who? You know, are you talking to work colleagues? Are you talking to people who are already informed about climate change and you know they're going to support you? Or are you talking to someone who's never really thought about climate change and the idea of changing a significant behavior in your life because of it seems completely alien. So kind of some kind of wisdom about which conversation you're going into, I think is important. A, a place that's, I think is a useful place to start almost regardless is in the context of your own experience. It's almost like inviting, inviting someone to witness your own journey. I was reading this report and it scared the hell out of me and I haven't been able to sleep. So I've made a few changes in my life. You're not saying you shouldn't fly you're connecting with your own value system and sharing that story with someone so they can see it. Not so that they have to change their behavior now or change their mind now, but they go away with that in their head because it's unlikely they've never heard about climate change. So they're probably somewhere on that journey already. And what I've found in that is that sometimes people come back to you and they come back and they say, do you remember you were saying about that climate change? Do you really think this is serious? And it's almost like they have got to a point now where their, their appetite for more knowledge has become awakened because they maybe they trust you or they can identify with you. And those are really powerful. You know, we don't we don't get persuaded into change by scientific papers. If, if we did, the problem would have gone away 50 years ago. We get persuaded into change by people we trust people we care about. And I think that hierarchy you gave is a, is a really good fact. If we all had that information, you're like, do you know the two biggest positive changes you can make is actually moving to a plant-based diet, even in part is going to make a difference and not flying. That's why I've chosen them. People can kind of get on board with that a little bit more, or at least have that knowledge. I wanted to ask you as well about the way we consume information now with our with our phones um our attention spans seem to be different we seem to take in information but not really embed it in our psyche properly and have it truly affect our behavior i mean people know all of these facts and and hear all of this but 
are we starting to change how we take in information and what we do with it? It's a really interesting observation. I think there's a lot of uncertainty about that still. Um, and there's probably a set of pros and cons to information coming at us in, in these multiple channels in small bits of information. You know, sometimes you, you can get a lot in a short period of time about what you need to know about. And that's obviously a benefit uh, rather than having to go to the library and sit down and, and read a book or a scientific paper. Um, the flip side is that it can become overwhelming and confusing and um, you there's a sense of who do I trust and which information, because you'll, you'll always find a debate on, on Twitter, for example, or and social media about the rightness and wrongness of things. Um, and sometimes those deb- debates are very ill-informed. So it's very hard to know uh, if you don't have the background understanding yourself, um, whether a person's position is valid or not. So it can be quite difficult for us to, to filter. The, the way I do that is by, finding people who I've come to trust as being excellent filters. And we're lucky in Ireland in that we do have people who are exceptionally knowledgeable in this area. Uh, so in journalism, for example, um, John Gibbons or Carolina Darty are excellent or Kevin O'Sullivan um, in, in politics, people like Simon Neal or uh, Eamon Ryan or others, um, people like Ali Sheridan. So there are voices that I've come to trust in Ireland who who act as a filter. And we, we do that already, right? We all know that um, there's a lot of stuff in the internet that you shouldn't believe. And in the absence of being scientifically literate in all the different spaces yourself, you need to borrow other people's expertise. So you kind of work through them. So I think that's probably the tip I would, I would lean towards. And where would you suggest people start? Because I know often I listen to a conversation like this and, it, you know, it stirs things in me and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm on board and people might be listening and feeling the same. And as you say, most of us really are on a journey where we're aware of it and would like to do something about it. But we've discussed all the reasons that seem to to stop us. So can we give them a starting point? The um, Because we were talking about it earlier, the DCU Climate Action Group um, have a sustainability page in their, in their website, um, and they have a really useful uh, graphic with um, the relative impact of different climate uh, change behaviours, pro-environmental uh, behaviours. So let's just leave that as a good source. And there's loads of other excellent information on their, on their website as well, loads of really well thought out infographics and uh, really clear communications on it. But I think even just stepping back even more um, broadly than that, Claire, I think probably the most important thing that people can do is to start having the conversations with other people in their lives. So getting informed is really important, but getting informed and talking is even more important um, because if you if you start looking just at the information, we're all subject to those psychological barriers that we've been talking about, you know, uh, dissonance or, or doomism or denial or all the things that we can, the reactions that we have um, that pull us away from engagement. So the talking about it part is really important. And that can be with people who, you know, already know a lot about climate change or people who are on, at the same point in the journey in terms of being uh, as unaware as you are. It doesn't really matter. The, the The most important thing is that people start talking about this. Well, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. Keep going, Dr. Owen Gallivan. Thank you so much for coming on. Delighted to. Thanks a million. 
Thank you for listening to Changemakers. If you enjoyed the podcast, I would love if you would take a moment to rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people to find the podcast too. Take care. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.